Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. No parable is more widely abused than the parable of the talents. On the heels of a series of Mathean stories that warn of destruction and judgment, the master assigns a duty to each of his slaves in anticipation, yet again, of the coming judgment. He does not want their money. He has no interest in their stewardship plans or building programs. Nowhere is there talk of parish growth or volunteer sign-up sheets. Lastly, and most importantly, when Matthew uses the word talents, he is not talking about our special, unique gifts from God. He is talking about the content of St. Paul's teaching. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 14 to 15. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 384 of the Bible as Literature podcast. And I am here to tell you today, if I have to sit through one more parish council meeting where someone stands up and talks about the parable of the talents and explains how everybody has to donate their talents to the church, I will never go to another parish council meeting ever again. It is horrible. It is a betrayal of all that is sacred. The way that people use the parable of the talents to talk about things that God is not interested in. Why would God be interested in your singing voice? Why? We know from Isaiah that he's not interested in your incense, and we know from Hosea <laughs> that he's not interested in your singing voice. We know from Amos that he doesn't like your music. Come on, people. It's just bad luck that the word talent in English refers to your silly talent show. The parable of the talents does not refer to the wonderful gifts that we offer through our stewardship program. It has nothing to do with your money, and it has nothing to do with your special abilities. It has to do with the investment in teaching that God makes in you. And I mentioned in a previous episode earlier this year, Richard, that it's a business investment. You 
give responsibility to a worker, in this case, we'll see in a moment, a slave. And if the slave does a good job, you give them more work to do. So if there's anything that's analogous, it's work. Because the instruction is an instruction to do something. I know that's very unpopular. Modern spirituality is about sitting down and being, because we all are worshipers of Plato. But as Father Paul taught us in the rise of Scripture, the serpent of Genesis 1 through 4 is an allegory for Plato. Plato is the devil, okay? Can we get that out of the way? So if you just want to be, you can go be with Satan. The rest of us would like to do according to the will of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who invests in us with his instruction. The difference between how we in English talk about talents and the way that talents are used in this parable is that there's something here that can be gained and lost. Your singing voice is going to be your singing voice no matter what you're doing. Your being is going to be being until you die. It just exists. It's there. But in this parable, it's all about the potential of losing something. It's gambling. When you use it, you may lose it. And that situation puts something on the line. So there's actually something on the line here. If you sing in the church choir or if you sing in your shower or if you sing in your car, you're not losing something if you stop singing in your car. You're still going to be able to sing tomorrow in your car. It's not comparable. So that's where I think this whole talent thing gets skewed because it's talking about something that can actually be lost. The other reason why I think people misinterpret this is because they stand up in the church council and they start reading at Matthew twenty five fourteen. They haven't read the past few many parables about how this is about being prepared, being ready at any moment to give up everything, to put everything on the line, because the judgment is now here to see if you prepared in the correct way to be ready to go at a moment's notice. I mean, my daughter knows people right now who are in the military and they're in the reserves, but in the reserves every month you have to spend a weekend doing drills. Why? Because if something were to happen, they need to know that you're ready to do it. And they're not just doing push-ups, they're having to do shooting drills and they're having to do survival training and they have to do all sorts of things because they don't know what the next thing is that's going to happen. If the military says, ah, you know, the reservists, they can take a couple months off, they don't need to do any preparation, it's fine. And then the third month something comes up, that's judgment time. How well did you prepare? Not well? Ooh, that's not good because now those soldiers themselves are in mortal danger. The preparation that we've been talking about for many episodes now is the core of this parable as we move into it. You're given this thing not for you to just hold on to, but to use as a means of preparation because, again, the master appears. And this has been a constant theme where the master disappears for a while and then suddenly reappears. This is the moment that they have been preparing for. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey 
all of Matthew 24 was about a man about to go on a journey because Jerusalem was crumbling. I just want to point that out. There's a storyline. It all fits together. Who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. Here we have the translators of the New American Standard Bible opting for the correct translation of the word thulos. They say slave. The word that they translate as entrust, para didomi, which means to give something over. And they're giving over their property, the things that belong to them. If we understand the metaphor and we understand that the master is the Lord and we are the slaves, what he is entrusting to us, what he is handing down to us, all this talk about tradition in the church, when we use the word tradition or we think about what is handed down, we're talking about human tradition. 99.9% of the time, when someone in one of the churches says tradition, they're talking about what Matthew calls and what the Apostle Paul calls the traditions of men. As Paul says, he was zealous for the traditions of his fathers. You have to stop being zealous for the traditions of your fathers. That's why, and I'll say it bluntly, even though my family is from the Middle East and my mother is from Palestine, I'm not interested ultimately in a Palestinian legacy. The land belongs to God. I'm not interested in maintaining the tradition of my fathers. Let's get down to brass tacks. I'm interested in the legacy of God through his instruction, which means that the land belongs to him to be shared with all of our brothers and sisters. I'm going to keep coming back to this point until it gets into everybody's head. That's why the only thing that is worth caring about and fighting for is the thing that the Lord Jesus Christ entrusts us with, which is his teaching. That is what we're talking about here. But think about it in the context of Matthew 24, when so much is at stake, because so much is being lost in worldly terms, when we're talking about a journey. He's leaving, and he's entrusting the thing that matters to him, his possession, to his slave. It's no small matter that he's handing it over to you. That's how you have to hear this verse. That's the tradition that counts. It's the words, not the platonic word and abstraction that everybody thinks they understand. The way people say, we're here to preach the gospel, and then they talk about I don't know what. I never hear someone say we're here to preach the gospel, and then they proceed to recite the words of Scripture. They say we're here to preach the gospel, and then they talk about other stuff. So everybody agrees with the propaganda, what matters is the gospel, but then they don't talk about the gospel. What is entrusted to us are the words 
that are inscribed in this book, that is what is handed down. That is the tradition that is delivered to us. Yeah, I was just talking to a group this week, and I was doing a Bible study, and I said, the way you stay close to God's Word is you read God's Word. And we were talking about Ezekiel. Ezekiel actually has to eat the words of God and put them in his belly so that everything he speaks might be the word that God gave to him. In the same way that a Looney Tunes dog eats a bar of soap and every time the dog barks, a bubble of soap comes out of his mouth. That's the way that it's supposed to work. With this passage, the way the Greek is constructed, the main action is he called his servants and he handed over his goods. I noticed the same word, Father, that you were mentioning here, paredoken, he handed over. It's the same word as paradosis, which is the teaching that Paul received. What is this process of handing over these iparchonda, these great possessions of his? It's as he was traveling far away that he called his own servants, interestingly, his own servants. He didn't just call servants. That This is something that it brings out. And, of course, Dulos is also translated as slave. So he called his own slaves, and he handed over his great, expensive goods. It doesn't even say talents here. So he left and handed over his precious items. And now we're going to find out what was expected of these slaves when they had these goods when the master left for this distant country. Theologians love to play on this language, parathesis, parathiki, and talk about tradition in an ecclesial context, and it's an abuse of the terminology. Because the terminology in Paul's epistles to Timothy is dealing with what Paul wrote to Timothy. So Matthew in the parable of the talents here, is playing on Paul's teaching. Because ultimately, what Paul is writing to Timothy reflects what is written in the New Testament canon, which revolves around Paul's teaching. It's a closed canon. We have to be very careful with technical terminology. Once we stray from the terminology that the authors themselves use very prescriptively, then we're just making up our own thing as we go. It's difficult. It's so difficult in our current historical setting, which revels in and celebrates the insertion of me into the experience of reading. Let me say it again. We explained to you how difficult it is, but how essential it is to check our opinions, our personal experience, our identities, our feelings at the door when we hear the commandment of God. Richard, you love to talk about this with the Kerubikon, in the liturgy. Set aside all earthly cares, viotiki, biological cares, the cares of this life of ours, this physical life that we consider of ours. We should take that prayer from the liturgy and 
hear it before we hear Scripture. So that as much as possible, we take ourselves out of the equation when we hear the commandments of God. Then there's a chance we can hear what's going on. Then there's a chance we won't get excited when we hear Jesus give a mashal in Matthew talking about the paradosis. We won't start thinking he's talking about the arrangement of the icons at church. Because I know that that's what people think about in our tradition. And that's not what Matthew's talking about. So please stop doing that. Learn Matthew. Don't impose your experience on Matthew. Because your experience is non-functional for Matthew. There was a Matthew before you, and there will be a Matthew after you. And whatever your experience is, and the experience of your fathers, it came after Matthew. So how could it be a reference for what Matthew is saying? Now, I understand we live in a world in which people don't believe that 1 plus 1 equals 2. So if you don't think 1 plus 1 equals 2, I can't help you. But if you accept that 1 plus 1 equals 2, then you have to accept what I'm telling you. And if you accept what I'm telling you, then we can proceed to the next verse. How we paint the icons, how we sing our songs, we like to make that the parathosis. But here in this parable specifically, the thing he handed over was his iparhonda, his goods. This is the same word that's used when Jesus is speaking in Matthew to the rich young man when he says, sell all your stuff. Iparhonda. Again, if we lose the icons, if we lose the singing, we'll be sad, but we can keep going. This is really giving up everything. This man who's traveling is giving everything over to his slaves. The faith that the master has in his slaves is very high. We'll see if he can truly trust the slaves, and that's what the judgment is. When you are handed over to, when he paredoken to the listeners of this parable, what will they do with what they've gained? Will they put it all on the line? Will they be willing to give up all of their iparjunda for the sake of the one who handed it all over to them? To one, he gave five talents. To another, two, and to another, one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. Notice the logical flaw in the parish council mentality. How could he be doling out abilities when he's assigning work on the basis of your ability? This is classic economia. He is a manager. He's looking to see the capabilities of his slaves, and he's assigning work. This guy is physically capable of carrying more, so I will give him more to carry. This guy is better 
at doing math in his head, so I'll give him more responsibility at the marketplace. This guy isn't very smart, but he's got strong legs, so I'll send him with a little job out here in the field. Let's see what he'll do. That's how you have to understand it, friends. But the point is, everybody who's been assigned work can do something with what's been assigned to them. And anybody who knows anything about management knows very often that just because someone has a ton of ability doesn't mean anything. Sometimes, because of tenacity and hard work, a person with less ability can surprise you. So it's a betrayal even to talk about people's abilities. It's a betrayal. It's about work. It's all about work. You give work to someone and then it's on them to do something with it. And you find out the result when you come back to check the work. The most insulting thing that anyone can ever say when you work hard and you produce something, you're able to do that because you have a special ability. When someone says that, it's insulting because they are discounting the amount of work that is required to produce something. Everyone is capable of doing something. So the compliment always is a veiled excuse from the perspective of the scriptural teaching. And that's why you'll see how the Lord of the household deals later in the parable with the person who didn't do much and used their supposed feeble abilities as an excuse. I had a friend who grew up on a farm in the Navajo reservation. And needless to say, there was a lot of work in watering the farm. And my friend was the youngest of eight kids. So I asked him, why did they have you watering? What were you going to do? And he said, they gave me a little tiny bucket. Now, his oldest brother, who had to do most of the work, was the tallest and the strongest and had the biggest shoulders. But did that mean then that the youngest didn't have to work? No. It meant he had to carry his little tiny bucket of water to make sure that he was pulling his weight. He didn't have a lot of weight to pull because he was small and he couldn't carry very much, but he was no less responsible for doing his work because of his dinamis. He only had so much strength, only so much power, but the father didn't say, you're off the hook. Just as in this case, he didn't say, you two slaves, you're going to be doing something. The other one, I know you're kind of lame anyway, so I'm just not going to make you do anything. No, he's making him do work. Everyone has something to do here. The other thing that I think is really important that you mentioned here, Father, that contrasts with our hypothetical... Not so not, hypothetical. Come on, don't, don't even our, go there. You, come on. I don't think we're creating a paper tiger here. Yeah, paper. Yes, the, this the, is. The, I think, and I don't. I think it's cross-denominational. I mean, I've seen pamphlets from multiple denominations talking about the parable of the talents and our gift in time, treasure, and talents, and then with a little quote saying Matthew twenty-five verses fourteen 
to whatever. <laughs> yeah. And so when they when they stand up, the difference between that and this is they say, well, my treasure, this is what I like to do. This is what I want to sign up for. I'll put my name down for that because it's what they like to do or feel talented with. You know what? If the priest says, on Sunday, I'm going to have the priest and I'm going to have one chanter and the deacon, technically that's enough for a service. And the rest of you, I need you to finish with the window wells and digging the window wells, because that's what we need to keep the rain out of the building so that our building's foundation won't crumble any further. Guess what? How well you sing that day doesn't matter. How well you carry that shovel that was handed over to you, that is your paradosis, the duty to dig out window wells, not to sing in the choir, In this parable, just like in a church in good order, the duty is handed to you and you begin to work because of what's handed to you. At work, this is easy. I sold my time to the company. Now they own my time. They can do with me what they want. At church, I still maintain a bit of ego and think that I get to have a choice in what I do. No, the company I work for does not give me my life itself. They just give me a salary. But my life itself was given by this God of whom Scripture speaks. I take on whatever work this God hands over to me and says, here's the work you need to do. I'm giving you my most precious items. I'm giving you my very goods, my iparjunda, And it's now your job to take care of those. I know you want to take care of your singing voice and you want to make sure you don't have too many calluses on your hands. However, here's a shovel. Please make good use of it. I'll be back in an hour and see how much progress you made. It's not hard to explain the difference between your relationship with your employer and your relationship with the gospel in a church setting. Just like it's not difficult to explain the difference between your relationship with Pepsi-Cola and your relationship with the Eucharist. Just look at the slogans of Pepsi-Cola or Coca-Cola over the years. Live for now. Drink Pepsi and live. Do you really think that if you drink Pepsi, you're going to live? Do you believe that? Yet you keep buying Diet Pepsi or Diet Coke and you keep drinking it like a tool. Why? Why not just drink water? Why? Just ask yourself that question. I know, because it has caffeine. But you should stick with the Arabs and drink coffee like a sane person. Why do you fear your employer? Because your employer puts the edge on Pepsi's lie that carbonated chemical water can give you life because the employer provides you a salary. So your fear of that control, which is the power of death, that's what you fear, the power of death, that the princes and sons of men and the worldly powers wield and hold over you. You don't fear God in that way. And so therefore for you, church is where you volunteer. Church is where you do your good deeds. It's not where you 
enter in fear and trembling and submit before the terrible judgment seat of the only power on earth. Because you don't believe that the throne of God is power on earth. You don't believe it. And that's why church is where you volunteer and donate your gifts. It's that basic. And the sad thing is you will never be set free from sin and tyranny and the power of death until you fear God more than you fear those who can take your livelihood, until you fear God more than you fear the people on Madison Avenue who make commercials and manipulate you. We have to understand this and reorient our fears. I teach this to my kids, Richard, and my daughters understand this. It's very important. I want my kids to understand this so that no one can take advantage of them. They know that I'm a tough father, but they also know that because I've been tough on them, they don't have to fear what's out there. They know they're prepared. And that's how God rolls. I learned that from Scripture. God is scarier than the people that would wield the power of death against us. So we don't have to be afraid. Psychologically, that's how authority works in Scripture. But at the same time, the burdens of the Lord are very light because at the end of the day, he cares for us like a parent, like a father or a mother. But a father or a mother who doesn't exercise authority, that authority figure is the true abuser. And I want to say it explicitly because, again, people in this society are very confused and bewildered about why there is gun violence, and I am explaining it to you because our children are lost because we are not teaching and we are not leading, and they are angry, and they have been abandoned to nihilism and narcissism, and it's not going to work. It requires work so that it can be made to work. I love that quote by Maya Angelou. Nothing will work unless you do. And I'm speaking to the parents. It takes work to be hard on our kids and challenge them. And we have to learn from Scripture the way God is hard on us, how to hold each other accountable and how to feed our children the bread of life. The same author that penned this chapter also penned that a human cannot serve both God and mammon. There can only be one source of life. That source of life has to be outside of ourselves. It has to be given to us. We have a difficulty in this culture because we want to take five different opinions and build our opinion from it. It's not possible because on what basis do we pick and choose what we want? We go with our heart's desire, but we all know that our heart's desire, it's got a 50-50 chance of ending someplace terrible, maybe even more than 50-50 once you throw social media algorithms in there. So we must understand what is the unique, singular source of life and follow that completely. And if I say that this scripture, this teaching, and the God in this scripture is my source of life, then who am I not to teach that to my kids? 
and say, well, there's all different things you could be learning from, you know, watch a little Star Trek and watch a little Oprah and throw some scripture in there too, and you'll find the way out for yourself. Eh, I don't know how it's going to end up. We can't parent ourselves. A lot of people in our culture say you have to parent yourself because you can't trust your parents. The only parents you can't trust are the ones who aren't handing you a teaching. We are, as parents, responsible for handing over this teaching that was entrusted to us. We can't keep it for ourselves. Now, I'm not talking about biological children, because you and I, Father, we've both had non-biological parents in our lives who have fathered us. And I'm grateful for that, because I wouldn't have life if it weren't for it. So your children that you are handing this over to do not have to be your biological children. There are countless young people in need. And when I say young people, I'm talking about in terms of the gospel, not according to biological years either, who need this teaching. Don't hold back from them. The ones who don't want this teaching, don't force it on them by no means, by no means. I mean, in this parable, it works because they're his slaves. If they were just some guys on the street, it wouldn't have made any sense to hand over his stuff to them. But when you have these people in your life, make a relationship hand over this teaching and then they themselves can have life. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.